Welcome to The Grizzly Beat, a podcast of Grizzly Times and Louisa Wilcox, where we interview scientific experts, managers, Native Americans, writers, and others to share their knowledge, perspectives, and experience. This comes at a time of enormous interest in the grizzly bear's future as the government proposes to remove federal protections, and citizens are asking important questions. We hope the information shared here will help listeners shape their own answers. This is Louisa Wilcox, and welcome to The Grizzly Beat. Today we have with us Tim Bozor, who spent his 45-year career before retirement as a federal scientist and land manager, most recently as field manager for the Bureau of Land Management in Dillon, Montana. While in Dillon, Tim served for 10 years as the BLM representative on Yellowstone's interagency Grizzly Bear Committee. Tim also worked for the U.S. Geologic Survey and BLM for 25 years as a hydrologist. Tim has a B.A. in biology from Berkeley. Tim, as a land manager, you worked on many controversial aspects of grizzly bear recovery in an important part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. What do you think was one of your greatest accomplishments, and what were some of the biggest challenges you left to your successors? Well, I think one of my greatest accomplishments um, is yet to be fulfilled, and that's dealing with uh, uh, United States USDA Sheep Experiment Station in uh, Centennial Mountains and trying to um, relocate that um, experiment station in another location that is less uh, critical to grizzly bear recovery. Um, a great many um, NGOs and the Forest Service spent a lot of effort um, trying to decrease threats to grizzly bears in grazing allotments in areas occupied by grizzly bears and um, were very successful in retiring a great many grazing allotments. And uh, um, USDA Sheep Experiment Station stands out as a um, kind of an um, anomaly in that um, not only do they want to keep grazing um, sheep in those high mountain pastures that are now uh, occupied by grizzly bears, but in addition, um, there's been mortalities of uh, grizzly bears on the sheep station as a direct result of um, protecting sheep, sheep herders that were hired by the um, sheep station. Um, it was determined uh, pretty much um, shot and killed a grizzly bear there, and there's been a number of other rumors of grizzly bears and other bears' um, demise once they um, were on the sheep station property. So um, that's been, you know, an effort that has been ongoing for a number of years and continues to this day, and uh, hopefully um, before I'm gone, uh, entirely, uh, that'll be resolved and um, that land will be um, returned to um, public management and uh, um, 
and grizzly bears will occupy that area as well as other wildlife species and not domestic sheep. Greatest, well, um, you know, there's been some other things that um, I worked on as part of the Yellowstone Ecosystem Subcommittee, and, and one was, um, you know, a constant effort in trying to recover the grizzly bear that goes on today is, um, you know, trying to decrease threats. And one thing we did was we, BLM and Dillon, required outfitters to carry bear spray. Um, and that went off um, a lot of angst by some people, but um, the outfitters didn't really balk at that, and um, that's been very successful for BLM. Um, I think that really to, to try to continue to reduce the threats to grizzly bears, I'd like to see um, hunters carry bear spray in any uh, hunting unit that uh, is occupied by grizzly bears. Um, I, I don't see a reason why not to do that. I think that's a pretty low uh, hurdle to get across, and I'd like to see the um, state fish and game agencies in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming uh, implement that. Tim, that makes a lot of sense, especially since data from the federal government over the last decade shows conflicts between big game hunters and grizzly bears are now one of the leading causes of grizzly bear mortality. Yet you were the only director of a land managing agency in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem to require outfitters to carry bear spray in grizzly bear habitat. Why do you think managers are so reluctant to take that step? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, it, you know, when I talked to the Forest Service about doing that, um, on the Yellowstone Ecosystem Subcommittee, they felt that legally their lawyers um, wouldn't try to support, wouldn't support them in doing that. And it was such an um, obvious uh, way to reduce risk to bears that um, I just went ahead and did it, and there was never any question or concern about it. It was an easy thing to do. and. Uh, the outfitters complied. So I really don't know why um, there's a reluctance. Um, I think there might be some pushback um, from some folks because of the minor cost, but if you look at the price of uh, an elk hunt on um, an outfitted elk hunt, it, it's, it's such a minor thing to do. Um, it, it really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. To do. And it works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, um, bear spray is, if we can continue to um, try to encourage people to use, you know, carry bear spray and, and um, hopefully not have to use it, but if they do, it's a much better alternative than protecting your elk or, or getting into a conflict over an elk or, um, running into a bear during hunting season to use bear spray instead of uh, a gun and try to um, reduce the mortality rate. I mean, we looked at the possibility of up to 10% of the bears in the ecosystem this year um, 
being eliminated, and and that's just not sustainable. Um, and yet we're we're marching on towards um, you know trying to um, delist the grizzly bear, and I think there's just too many risks out there to do that at this time. I'd like to get back to that point about delisting and risk in a moment. But first, you developed a program on your district to reduce human-bear conflicts, loaning out bear-proof coolers and electric fence and outfitter kitchens. How well did that program work, and what kind of challenges did you face? With BLM was lack of funding. Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in its um, you know, grizzly bear recovery program had funding that they provided to the Forest Service um, for food storage containers and for various um, methods of trying to um, decrease conflicts with grizzly bears. Um, BLM didn't receive any of those kind of funds. And so it was a matter of trying to go out there and, and put things together by talking to NGOs and requesting funding through the agency to um, build things like food storage containers. I had an um, individual in our warehouse construct, um, buy the steel and construct the containers, um, and we placed them in some of our recreation sites after we tested them up in West Yellowstone at the uh, Grizzly Bear Recovery Center. and. Uh, so that's worked out well. We gave some to the um, Montana Fish and Game at one of their fishing access sites, and we put them at some of our recreation sites on the Madison. Um, we also got some um, material to create um, some place you could hang game um, by uh, attaching uh, game poles to trees and using um, some metal um, to hold those uh, game poles in place on the trees. Um, we acquired some um, electric fencing to um, fence in um, food, uh, acquired um, a kitchen unit um, that could be um, closed down and, and um, bear-proof coolers, things like that we could loan out to outfitters and hunters to um, decrease the likelihood that there's going to be a food con conflict. Um, so, I mean, some of those things, it was just a matter of trying to find the funding um, and going out and, and making sure people knew that those things were available if they wanted to borrow them. Um, but, and you had a fair amount of support among people who used Well, we were able to get money, um, a little bit of money through the agency and um, through some NGOs we were able to obtain funding. Um, so it was a matter of just going out and trying to get the funding as best we could. Now, um, I think, you know, those kind of opportunities are decreasing as the agency's budgets are constrained and, uh, you know, as, as we move closer towards recovery um, and delisting, I think 
those opportunities decrease because I think people think there's enough bears out there and in some instances, so they're less likely to provide that kind of funding through the government. So what about funding post-delisting? There's a discussion, obviously, now about removal of protections for grizzly bears and concerns about whether or not adequate funding will be available. What's your take on the funding issue? Once the the bears delisted, the the money for um, trying to reduce threats is is going to dry up. Uh, I you know the the agencies just aren't going to obligate the money for um, a species that's delisted and um, according to Fish and Wildlife Service is uh, doing okay. So uh, I I think it's going to be much harder for the agencies to acquire the funding necessary to reduce threats. And as we know, the threats are increasing. The population growth in the Gallatin Valley, um, in Big Sky, um, increasing dramatically. Uh, You know, it's one of the um, top growing regions in the country right now, Um, population-wise. percentage on a percentage basis it's right you know amazing what's going on here and the people are moving here for uh their access to public lands and they like to hunt and fish and hike and ride bikes and and they're right in the middle of you know some of the areas that you know everyone hopes grizzly bears are moving into and expanding and conflicts are going to be there. Um, mm-hmm. And we're going to see more and more human conflict, human-caused deaths, uh, traffic, uh, mm-hmm. you know, hunting. It's just going to get, you know, more and more need for efforts to decrease threats to grizzly bears. And I don't think the money is going to be there. Right. Do you have a sense that the states are going to be equally hit as the federal land managing agencies? Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, the states are going to have a harder time, um, you know, spending money on a species that's recovered and there to manage. Um, we're looking at, you know, some pretty conservative efforts on reducing budgets and not taking federal money. And I think it's going to be difficult for the states to um, put a significant effort out there um, to a species that's um, theoretically, according to them, um, recovered. Tim, in the years you served on the Yellowstone Grizzly Bear Subcommittee, you saw the decline of several key foods for Yellowstone grizzly bears, Yellowstone cutthroat trout, whitebark pine, Yellowstone's northern elk herd. Yet the Fish and Wildlife Service came out with a rule to delist Yellowstone grizzly bears in March, saying that bears can compensate with other foods. Can you share your perspective on this? Well, I think a lot of the population grizzly bear population gains in the Yellowstone ecosystem were made at a time when the northern elk herd was high, uh, when whitebark pine um, nuts were available, 
Um, and when cutthroat trout um, were um, abundant in Yellowstone Lake. And those three things just aren't there anymore. And I think, in my opinion, um, it seems to me that the core population in the park and protected areas like the park, uh, parks, Grand Teton and Yellowstone, um, those bears have a harder time making a living than they did. And I think the population increase in the core area is declining, and I think those bears are moving out because of the high-protein food sources, the high-fat food sources aren't there anymore. And yes, um, grizzly bears will adjust and, and eat other things. They have to now. But um, I think you're pushing more bears out into areas that are less protected and there's more threats while we have, you know, not enough funding to deal with those threats. Um, the cutthroat trout population in Yellowstone Lake is never going to be like it was. There's a, a great effort to uh, reduce the lake trout population, but it's, it's not going to ever go away. And the cutthroat trout um, food source in Yellowstone Lake is never going to be like it was before. The northern elk herd is down from 19,000 animals in the northwestern part of the park to 4,000 animals. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. almost no hunting being proposed in the northwest part of the ecosystem, such as the Gardner or um, Gallatin. The Gardner population is down. Um, those areas, um, you're seeing a, a big decrease in elk numbers and um, that the um, availability of that high-protein food source is greatly diminished. Um, whitebark pine is, is essentially gone um, from most, much of the ecosystem. Um, the the pine nuts were a, a great source of uh, high-fat food in the uh, late summer, early fall for uh, bears to acquire, and uh, now that's gone. So, I mean, those are three of the dominant food sources that bears were utilizing, and I think we haven't really seen the long-term results of that because of the you know, slow rate which bears reproduce, and we just don't know yet, I don't think, what the, the real impacts of all that are. Yeah, so that's the challenge of time. Tim, you talked a bit about grizzly bear mortalities earlier, but maybe you can expand on that. So during the last 10 years, we've seen grizzly bear mortalities in the Yellowstone ecosystem increase. While according to federal estimates, the population has remained more or less flat. In 2015, 61 grizzly bears were reported to have died, 55 of them from human causes, which means that the total, a total of 90 bears died when you apply the government's estimate of unreported deaths. So this is about 12% of the population dead. Given this kind of mortality, do you think that removing Yellowstone's grizzly bear protections is appropriate? No, I don't think it's appropriate. I think those mortality rates aren't sustainable. The mortality rates 
um, have continued to climb since I was involved with the um, Yellowstone Ecosystem Subcommittee in 2002 uh, when I first started going to those meetings and was appointed to represent BLM, I, I, I've seen those um, mortality rates steadily increase. And I think, uh, like I mentioned earlier, with the increasing population, uh, the, the food sources being diminished uh, in the core area in particular, uh, I think the risks are too high to move forward with delisting. Um, I, I don't think we have, you know, well, the population theoretically could be determined to be um, stable. I think it's actually declining somewhat, especially mm -hmm. in the core area, and the risks are too great. Yeah. Tim, if you were still working and you were given the job of grizzly bear czar, what else would you do related to grizzly bears? Well, I think there's a number of things you could do to reduce threats to grizzly bears. I think you could require, um, I think hunters should be required to carry bear spray in, mm -hmm. in hunting units that are occupied by grizzly bears. That's not a big ask. Um, mm -hmm. You know, thousands of people acquire bear spray as they go into the park, um, parks, both Grand Teton and, and Yellowstone for hiking. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's a big ask for the um, fish and game agencies in the three states to require hunters to carry bear spray with them uh, when they're hunting. Uh, I just don't think that's a big request. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's more efforts in food storage that need to take place, um, that we need, you know, more dispersal of food storage containers um, throughout the, the ecosystem. I think we need to encourage movement of grizzly bears um, in various areas outside of the park and try to reconnect with the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem. I think until that connection is made, um, I, I don't see why we need to rush delisting at this point. I know it's a success story that the government wants to hang its hat on on um, teeny species, but I don't. I think it's too big a risk at this point. I think we're going to be back where we were, um, you know, with a decreased population. And I think we're going to be back where we were if we move ahead with the, if the government moves ahead with the listing, I think we're going to be back uh, with a threatened species eventually in probably 10 years because the population will continue to decline because the threats aren't addressed. Interesting. Tim, would you like to expand on your views of other threats that the grizzly bears face? Well, yeah. we've got sheep in the gravelies, domestic sheep yeah. in the gravelies, domestic sheep, you know, there's a still a push to um, get the sheep back up in the centennials again. Um, so right. those threats aren't going away. And um, 
you know, we've lost bears because of that, and, you know, we're going to continue to see bear mortalities, but the human-caused mortality rate is so high that I just don't see um, delisting and then the potential for hunting bears down the road um, as, as something that is a prudent thing to do for grizzly bears. Shifting gears, Tim, I'm interested in your perspective on the month-long arms takeover of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon last winter. And perhaps maybe on a more personal note, how did that incident affect you? Well, um, I moved up here in the late 70s, largely because of the access to public land. Um, you know, I didn't want to live in a place that I didn't have easy access to um, the outdoors and public land to camp and hunt and fish on. And I think there's a lot of people that have moved into Montana and Wyoming, Idaho, uh, in particular uh, other states as well in the West, um, for a large degree for their access to public lands. And um, certainly it's a big draw to the Bozeman area um, and others as well. And to me it was a pretty big insult to, you know, have spent my entire um, pretty much adult life uh, working to um, protect public lands, manage public lands for the benefit of all the people in the United States and elsewhere, um, but funded by the public nationwide and to have a small group of um, radical armed um, people take that over, uh, take over a wildlife refuge and their aim being to turn over the country's public lands to ranchers, uh, loggers, and miners um, who have pretty much dominated the um, discussion on use of public lands over um, the decades previous um, is, is kind of just insulting to me. The public uh, owns those lands. They're managed for the general public, and um, multiple uses occur on them, huge subsidies in ranching, uh, timber, uh, mining occur, um, as well as other things. Recreation is subsidized as well. Um, so, you know, to the thought of turning those over to ranchers, farmers, and or ranchers, uh, loggers, and miners um, who have, you know, pretty much had a huge say in the management of public lands already um, just is kind of dumbfounding to me. But um, <laughs> I was... Yeah. You know, I... I would like to see more um, 
you know, support out of um, the general public as far as retaining public lands, but the, the, the polls that have been taken, especially in Montana, show over 60% favor retaining federal ownership of public lands. Uh, the state can't manage those lands. Um, the state manages for a profit uh, for right. the school trucks. And right. the federal government does not manage for a profit. It subsidizes the livestock industry, the mining industry, the oil and gas industry, the, you know, and timber sales are done at below cost. And um, grazing is $1.65 uh, an animal unit month, and on state land it's five times that, um, at least. And mm -hmm. private um, grazing is over 20 to $25 an animal unit month. Um, so there's a huge grazing subsidy that the individuals who have those federal grazing permits don't want um, the land because, you know, they can graze it for next to nothing. So um, there's no support there. The timber industry doesn't support it because they know the cost of timber goes up when the state puts up a timber sale right. compared to BLM or the Forest Service. So. Right. Tim, does it surprise you that more people were not rallying behind the cause of public lands at that time? Yeah, I, it did. You know, I, I thought there would yeah. be more of an outcry of support. Um, yeah. I know eventually there was more in Oregon. There were individuals, but I think they were afraid. I think yeah. there's, a, you know, a fear yeah. of um, those individuals that right. are, you know, um, pretty radical, armed, mm -hmm. and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people out there who um, quietly support the public lands and federal ownership but just aren't vocal about it. Right. Hopefully they'll vote for their public lands come November. I hope so. At least the choice is ours then. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Well, this is Louisa Wilcox with the Grizzly Beat, here with Tim Bozorth, former director of the Bureau of Land Management in Dillon, Montana, and member of the Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee. Thank you very much.